Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Rico Isaacs about his new book, Film and Identity in Kazakhstan, Soviet and Post-Soviet Culture in Central Asia, published by IB Taurus. Dr. Isaacs is an associate professor of politics at the University of Lincoln in the UK. His research focuses on nation building and institutions in post-Soviet Central Asia. He writes regularly on Central Asian politics and culture, and he has also authored or co-authored several other book publications, including Theorizing Central Asian Politics, The State, Ideology, and Power, with Palgrave Macmillan, Nation Building and Identity in the Post-Soviet Space, New Tools and Approaches with Rutledge, and also Party System Formation in Kazakhstan, Between Formal and Informal Politics, also with Rutledge. Rico, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you. So uh, we have a very exciting book about film and identity in Kazakhstan. But before we get to the meat of the book, I was hoping you could introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about your educational background and how you got interested in Central Asia and the post-Soviet world. Yeah, so um, I received my PhD in in the UK in politics. back in 2005 and my PhD was on Kazakhstan and actually the book that you mentioned there, Party System Formation in Kazakhstan, that was essentially my PhD work. But my interest in Central Asia goes back further. I uh, studied at the LSC and did a master's in post-Soviet politics there where we covered Central Asia. But I think prior to that, I was always interested in authoritarianism. I was always interested in non-democratic regimes. Uh, how they're sustained, the nature of power, the nature of obedience, um, and the nature of institutions and how they operate in these non-democratic contexts. And so Central Asia became, I mean, I'm I'm sure as you're aware and and your listeners are aware, Central Asia is obviously a very good um, lightning rod for those types of questions. And 
I mean, Central Asia appeared to me on the map after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was in my very formative years as a teenager when the Soviet Union collapsed. And growing up, I'd always understood there was this entity called the Soviet Union, and then it collapsed, and there was all these different countries suddenly appeared, and some of them had these funny names, such as Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. And, and I think this is where my interest arose as a, as a teenager, and then having studied Russian politics and uh, Russian history, uh, I graduated to Central Asia sort of, sort of very slowly and, and tentatively, and, and that's how I ended up on uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan and so on. Great. And well, I can't help but notice that um, this book stands out a little bit from your other publications, um, whereas your past publications have been solely focused, I think, on uh, questions which can be put into the category of political science. Uh, I think you were a little bit more creative in this um, book because you're looking at film and identity. But as I understand, you're also trying to pull um, some conclusions about the nature of uh, Kazakh society, post-Soviet Kazakh society specifically, and also maybe um, looking for a reflection of, of politics within that. Is that right? And if so, how did, you, how did you come to this project? Why did you decide to study cinema in, in Kazakhstan? Yes, I think, that's, I think that's right, Nick. Um, principally, you know, I'm not a film studies person that's not my that's not my background um, and I don't say this as some kind of qualifier or, or trying to <laughs> defend myself uh, in this way but it was more that uh, I, I, I came at film and cinema in Kazakhstan uh, from a what I would call a political science or political studies perspective and in, in, in using cinema as an analytical lens to yeah try and understand something about the nature of these debates that I have been um, alerted to since, since studying uh, post-Soviet Kazakhstan around nationhood and identity. Uh, and, and what does cinema tell us about the nature of these debates, how people understand uh, identity in Kazakhstan and in its different forms in this post-Soviet uh, context. But in, in relation to, you know, why this particular project, how did it come about? How is it different from the work that I've previously done on, on, on you know, political institutions, formal and informal politics, and and so on? Uh, it's partly serendipity, I guess. I mean, I first went to Kazakhstan in 2006 and I spent a year out there conducting field work, interviewing lots of politicians, and it was very serious stuff in that sense. And you know, to while away the time, uh, you know, when I had some downtime, I'd go to the DVD shop and slowly I, over the years, every time I went back, I kept seeing this sort of section on Kazakh cinema get bigger and bigger. And I was very puzzled, you know, not puzzled, I was uh, interested, I should say. I mean, I like films, I like watching uh, films and have an interest in cinema. Uh, and I have, and I, you know, at the time, I guess I was falling in love with Kazakhstan. So these two came together and I'd watch films. And then after I had finished my PhD and, and published uh, the book on parties and institutions and, and published some articles. I was looking for another project and, and uh, I remember one particular time being in the Melaman store in Almaty and uh, paying attention to all this Kazakh cinema and I'd watched a few films. I was like, oh, well. Uh, and there was all these big budget films that had been produced that were, I mean, akin to some kind of uh, sort of 
government propaganda about you know nation building and identity and, and sort of foundation myths. This I'm, I'm referring here in particular to the films uh, Nomad and uh, Mumbala. And I thought to myself, ah, oh, there's probably an easy article I could write here about this. Says so, you know, as cinema is a sort of form of government propaganda when it comes to nation building. And I thought, ah, oh, just you know, I'll watch these films, I'll analyze them a bit, and I'll write a paper, and this will make my research manager at work happy. And uh, and what happened was that I, you know, I did start to write this, but it became clear to me the more films that I watched is that the 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 story was much more complex than this sort of state-led narrative about Kazakh nationhood and identity, and that I started to unpack these multiple narratives, these different narratives in some of the films I was watching, and then I was able to kind of match that with my understanding of the discourses and debates that was ongoing about nationhood and identity in Kazakhstan. And so eventually I did write this article, but it was more complex than I originally intended. But as I was going out, giving conference papers and seminar papers about this, this article, I mean, people seemed to be quite interested in it um, because, you know, it wasn't the usual, um, perhaps slightly stale and serious um, uh, work on, on political institutions. Uh, I mean, it's still serious work, I guess, but I guess it was more fun. It was more creative, as you say. And um, and, and when I was going out giving talks about this, the, the first piece of research I did on, with the article, people were, you know, there's lots of questions and there's lots of discussions and lots of debates. And, and all of a sudden, I felt like there was a larger story to tell, even from the initial article I, I wrote. And so then that's when I set about to try and, and write the, the book, which would tell this larger story about how using cinema as a lens to try and trace and track all these different debates around nationhood and identity in Kazakhstan from the Soviet period as well, uh, through the period called the New Wave, which I'm sure we'll touch on in, in, in a moment, which was in the late 80s, early 90s, and through into the post-Soviet period. One thing I'd like to add, actually, is that it became... One of the things is I, I, when I was in Kazakhstan doing research, uh, for my PhD and afterwards, I would and I would spend a lot of time interviewing politicians and political elites, and and this got a little bit boring and uninteresting. And I also thought, ah, oh, maybe interviewing film directors and people involved in the film industry would be would be much more fun. And it and it was. And I think we'll get to this later because I do have some questions about about kind of your source material and like who you were discussing these topics with on the ground in Kazakhstan. Um, but let's let's kind of start chronologically here because actually um, film production in what is now Kazakhstan actually began before, uh, before the Soviet Union. Is that right? Uh, there was a brief um, kind of expansion, if we want to call it that, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but there, there was a presence of film production or at least film consumption in what is now Kazakhstan in the late imperial period. Um, how did you find out about this? Where are you pulling this information from? And can you describe that in a little bit of detail? Yeah, I think we, it's a stretch. I mean, yes, there was some film consumption in Kazakhstan in the very late imperial period. Um, the first ever cinema in Kazakhstan opened in 1910 in what was then called Varani, which is you know, now Almaty. Um, and, uh, but 
you know, cinema, you know, the, the, the distribution and showing of films was incredibly limited, incredibly limited in Central Asia at the time. Uh, so, and of, and of course, it would have been silent films uh, and newsreels and so on. Uh, but it, uh, yeah, I would say it was very limited. And in terms of where that information came from, it was mostly from sources uh, within Kazakhstan, people that had written on the development of cinema in, in Kazakhstan, scholars there. Um, and, and actually some some writers from the Soviet period who had, had written about cinema as well. But I think it gets more interesting actually after the revolution, which is where there's a, 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 the, the, the Russian revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, I should say, which is when we get an explicit attempt to try and promote uh, cinema in, in, in Kazakhstan, actually, and in Central Asia in general. Um, where there's a, a deliberate effort on the part of the Bolshevik government uh, to promote um, cinema or the showing of films throughout the East. They set up the Vostok Kino, uh, which was dedicated really to the sort of the, 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 the distribution of uh, film showings in, in Central Asia. Um, but of course, on the one hand, it's you know it's it's quite straightforward to to build cinemas and and show newsreels and propaganda films in a city like uh, Almaty or Tashkent, but uh, but particularly in Kazakhstan, you've got lots of people living in the rural areas. You've got nomadic populations still, and, and so what the Russians tended to do was set up these traveling uh, cinema shows where they would and they would go and uh, they, they would travel around the steppe and and try and show. Uh, newsreels and, and films and, and to to uh, these uh, populations in the rural areas. And how were were these attempts successful? Did people really come and watch these films? Um, I'm sure this is a difficult question to find. Uh, you know, we'll 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 get to the question of reception later. But do you have any sense of of whether or not people liked these early Bolshevik films or um, if it was, there was something novel in, in seeing a film for the first time? Uh, I mean, that's very hard to answer. I mean, I don't think there's any, from what I have read, there's no sort of specific data on how people received these films at the time. But you can only imagine much like in the West, actually, when you know people were first um, uh, subjected to uh, cinema, that it was something extraordinary. I mean, of course, there's the very famous uh, anecdote about uh, people seeing the this uh, early film of the train riding into the station and people running out of the cinema because they thought that it was going to come through that the train was going to come through the screen. Now, I don't know uh, how how the peoples of the Central Asian Steppe uh, responded, but of course, um, yeah. I mean, I think my own understanding of of cinema and the history of cinema is that, of course, it would have been something of 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 wonder and and, uh, um, and I guess something slightly magical at the time. How they were received in terms of uh, the actual content of, of the films, I think that's, yeah, that's very difficult to, to answer. I don't think there's a lot of um, sort of historical data pertaining to that. Absolutely. And it, it absolutely would have been something kind of even mind-blowing to, to a, you know, to a, a, a Central Asian Nomad, for instance. I mean, this is incredible. Um, so, when so at this time, as far as I understand, most of the films that would have been shown in these traveling exhibitions would have been either Russian films or even imported films from abroad. 
But when when does film production in Kazakhstan actually begin? And then also, um, if we're going to talk about that, I had a question about uh, the term national film and whether whether you think Kazakh film has always been kind of framed as being national film and, and maybe what are the uses and limitations of that term national film? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in terms of these sort of antecedents or what's called the birth of Kazakh cinema, there's a big, I mean, there's a, there's a big debate within the, the sort of few film specialists in, in Kazakhstan about, about this. And there's lots of discussion about, you know, what is the first Kazakh film and, Oh, and it depends. I mean, I, I'm personally because I have some skepticism in terms of this idea of what, what we, I think conceptually in film studies is called uh, national cinema, and I'll come to that. I'm not sure how helpful really this discussion of when is Kazakh, when does Kazakh cinema um, start or what's the birth of Kazakh cinema, because it depends on a number of things. And, um, uh, you know, you can look at a film co- like Turksib, which is uh, a fil- an early Soviet sort of documentary film that was uh, released in 1929, uh, which kind of details, uh, it's all, almost like an ethnographic film to some extent, that details the, the construction of the uh, Turkestan-Siberian railway. And, you know, because partially it's shot in Kazakhstan. Does this make it a Kazakh film? Because there's the subject. Uh, and, it, and and to some extent, yes. To, to to many extents, no. Yes, in that we, for the first time, see the depiction of of Kazakh people and Kazakh nomads or and Central Asians in general in you know Soviet propaganda films, and they're depicted in a particular way in national dress and and picking cotton and and so on. Uh, it's a beautiful film, actually, to to, to watch. I have to say. Um, but of course, it's a very it's a Soviet propaganda film uh, about sort of the power of uh, Soviet industry, um, and it's you know it's uh, directed by a, a Russian, and uh, it, you know Russian uh, production uh, sort of pe- sorry people working sorry the people working in the, on the production of the film are, of course are Russians. Then you have uh, in '39 a, a feature film called Amangeldi. Again, it's about uh, Amangeldi Imanov, a Kazakh uh, um, a general who 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 uh, was the organizer of the 1916 rebellion against uh, Tsar Nicholas II and his decree to conscript Muslims into the um, into the Russian army as part of the war effort. <clears throat> but again, it's usually Russian production. And we don't really get a kind of this sort of full sort of uh, technical people involved in Kazakh film and the, in, the, in the production of film plus the Kazakh subject until the 1950s, really, and with Kazakh actors and Kazakh directors. And this is sort of where the debate goes. And, and this is actually a consequence of the Second World War in that uh, during the Second World War, a lot of film production and film companies like Mosfilm and Lenin Film were were uh, moved to Almaty, out of Moscow, and uh, and and you what you've got is a, as part of this is a lot of the sort of skills and training that went into film production was then passed on to sort of local Kazakhs who were working in um, uh, the film industry at that time, and and then slowly uh, yes, this sort of translated in the post world, sorry, post second, sorry, the post war period. 
to more Kazakhs being involved in film production and directors coming through, particularly a director like uh, Shakin Aymanov, who's also an actor. And so this is when you know people start to say, ah, in the 50s, this is really when you get the birth of, of proper uh, Kazakh cinema. Uh, because you've got the production team behind it, it's Kazakh subjects, it's the uh, Kazakh actors, Kazakh directors, and so on. However, you know, I'm not sure if this, when we think about cinema in this way, is something that is discreetly uh, national, uh, is, is always particularly helpful. I mean, and even during the Soviet period, in that, you know, cinema is something, or films are, you know, particularly now, are. Uh, are something which are always influenced by external stimuli and external factors, whether it be the films by particular directors of another nationality, uh, whether it be that you've always got people of different nationalities working on the films. Um, so I think for me, this idea of discrete bodies of work being a form of um, particular form of national cinema, I don't think is always very helpful. Whether you can subscribe uh, particular themes, genres, or aesthetic styles to a particular national identity when cinema itself is a very transnational um, industry and a transnational form. And in film studies, there is a lot of debate around this concept of national cinema and whether you can observe you know, these kind of discrete bodies of work which we can say this is French cinema, this is Italian cinema, this is Russian cinema, Kazakh cinema, and so on. And I guess, you know, to some extent, perhaps you can, but I think in particularly today in, 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 in a world of sort of very sort of globalised cinema, I think that's very hard, hard to see. And I don't think it's particularly helpful analytically. Um, also, if in, in, in these, these attempts to by the, the Kazakh government, for example, to make very uh, nationally specific films, which again, I think we, we, we might come to, where um, even though they seem to be very nationally specific, actually a lot of the things behind them in terms of even the stories, how they're made, were actually quite influenced by Soviet and Russian filmmaking. So does that mean it's a, a Kazakh film? It's very, it's very. Um, I think it's ambiguous in that sense. Just to finally say on this, I mean, I do use the concept of national cinema in the book, but I seek to use it as an analytical frame, as a way to break down uh, and disaggregate all the different modes of production that you, is necessary to analyse to try and unpack films and unpack these different discourses and debates in films, and to think about the different audiences and the different genres and the different ways in which the state can or cannot intervene in the production of cinema and the different markets involved and the different influences involved. So I, 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 I try to use it as, a, as an analytical frame, so as a kind of set of things that I wanted to look at when studying cinema and trying to unpack these discourses and narratives of nationhood identity rather than a conceptual um, frame to say, ah, I'm trying to identify a particular form of Kazakh cinema. And so, but with the emergence of these, uh, the film production that, you know, specific, was, sorry, was the main film production in Kazakhstan in Almaty or in Astana? Or what is um, do, do you, in, in terms of... Was there a Kazakh uh, film studio 
And and where was it located? Yes, so uh, Kazakh Film is uh, was located in Almaty. I think I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was originally um, established in the late thirties, uh, but mostly as a documentary and news um, uh, studio. And it was only as a consequence of the war period when all of the uh, other film studios in Moscow, or many of the film studios in Moscow got relocated to Almaty, that it started doing other types of films, uh, more feature films. And if we talk about the, the content of these feature films that emerged, I think you said in the 50s, but especially in the 60s and 70s, um, wasn't there kind of a strong focus on um, kind of Kazakh historical figures or weren't a lot of these films framing things in kind of a national context. So even if, even if the, the, the people making these films, if it was, it was a mixture of Russians and even people from the, from Georgia or, you know, from all over the Soviet union, um, the content of them, of the films themselves seems to be national in some way. Would you agree with that? And then could you also give us kind of an overview of, of what these, what the major films from this period of the 60s were um, and, and what they were focused on? Yes, I think there was an attempt to create or use cinema uh, on the part of the Soviets to use cinema to build up these national heroes um, or often it's called the Red Bartiers, so, so these sort of Soviet heroes but who have a kind of national character but they're really projecting uh, often a soviet form of propaganda so yes um and this is by and large was you know you could argue as part of soviet nationalities policy the attempt to um you know you know we're dealing with soviet nation building in central asia at this point in the 20s in the 30s in the 40s in the 50s and the 60s and and this was and cinema was part and parcel of that in terms of some of the films, I mean, one thing that one film that comes to mind is uh, Shakin Naimanov in the film um, about Jambul, this uh, famous uh, uh, Kazakh uh, Dombra player and poet, a folk singer, and uh, it it is an attempt to be a for, I mean, to some extent he's he's presented as a as a sort of you know Soviet uh, hero, but also a national hero uh, that supports. Uh, Soviet values and Stalinist values in that sense, and, um, and so there's other films like uh, Kizhebek, you know, which is a very uh, nationalist film uh, in in this sense, in in terms of the projection of particular national perceived Kazakh national folk tales, Kazakh symbols, uh, this sort of very Kazakh uh, folk folk myth. Um, but what I would say, I mean, what I, I think what I try to argue in the book is that what we start to see, though, in some of this cinema, particularly in the 60s, and I don't think Kazakhstan in the 60s was uh, unique in this sense among other Soviet republics, but is, is that cinema, is even though these are films which have some kind of national element, but they're contrived in a very sort of almost Soviet social realist or socialist realist way. I would argue that you start to see very sort of small or um, efforts, uh, subtle efforts of um, pushback against the Soviet narrative and the Soviet regime, and in that, in very, in trying to project this sort of very nationalist idea or national projection of um, 
you know, Kazakhstan and Kazakh identity uh, in these films, that to some extent this is going against the, the Soviet, you know, friend, friendship of all peoples, the all-Soviet national, the all-Soviet identity um, discourse. So I think, uh, but I think there is a tension between these things. On the one hand, these films are, of course, formed of Soviet propaganda. On the other hand, I think particularly with the, some of the work of uh, Aymanov, as of, of the, uh, Shaking Aymanov was already said, there's very, 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 very subtle forms of dissent in that sense by this kind of real projection of uh, Kazakh national identity and Kazakh nationalism. But it's very subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so um, in, in the third chapter of the book, um, which I think was probably one of my favorite chapters, if not the, my favorite chapter, was on something called the Kazakh New Wave, uh, which, I, which doesn't really happen until the late 1980s or mid to late 1980s under Perestroika. Um, it's this period uh, when a group of directors known as, uh, and I love this, the Wild Kazakh Boys, um, uh, kind of re- respond to the structural changes in the film industry and uh, make make a series of decisions, um, and and they start making new films that are uh, something very different from from what we had seen in the sixties and seventies and even early eighties. And we get we get some really interesting films, such as um, one that I had seen before, and I had no idea that this was a Kazakh film called uh, The Needle. So Igil. Um, I saw this as a student of Russian and, um, you know, it's got Viktor Tsoi, this famous, uh, late Soviet, uh, rock star in it. Um, where, where are we getting, where are these directors getting the influence from this film? You know, the fact that they called themselves the new wave tells me that this is, that they are watching European films or maybe even French films. Um, so how does this all uh, happen? Yeah, so the Kazakh New Wave, I mean, again, it's another one of these disputed terms about, you know, when does it start, when does it begin, who's in, who's out of the New Wave. But, uh, I mean, I think it's a useful label to kind of make sense of some of the changes that were going on at the time. Some of them were structural, of course, with the advent of both Perestroika and Glasnost and uh, the changes to the film industry that you mentioned. Um, but I think partly some of it's also a deliberate effort on the part of uh, people who are working for uh, the Kazakh uh, film studio at the time and that they wanted to, uh, Goskino, uh, that they wanted to you know, make an effort, a deliberate effort to, uh, to invest in young Kazakh directors or young Kazakh uh, producers, cinematographers uh, working in the film industry. And so they created this uh, special workshop uh, for that would be led by uh, Sergei Solovev. And um, these guys that they chose went on to make some of these uh, uh, 
uh, films that uh, we're talking about here. You mentioned Nugmanov, Rashid Nugmanov's uh, The Needle and uh, Talgat Timianov's films, A Wolf of Cub Amongst Little People, Sere Caprimov, The Last Stop, and so on and so on. There's many. And um, yeah, and I think I've, I interviewed some of these guys, uh, these directors who made these films, and their films are influenced very much by, well, French cinema, Italian cinema, uh, European cinema in general. And, and you mentioned uh, the new wave. Actually, uh, this was a, a title that Rashid Dugmanov, the director of the Eagle, uh, sorry, Igla, came up with. Uh, when they were hosting a special section at the Moscow Films Festival in 1990, and they just—it was a marketing device. It was—it was as simple as that. I don't think it was a deliberate attempt to say, "Ah, oh, we're a specific, discrete um, uh, genre within within uh, cinema or even Kazakh cinema." I think it was a deliberate kind of marketing uh, label that they came up with just to uh, to promote themselves. Um, but I think what's interesting about these this period in these films is that they were really breaking with the conventions of uh, the Soviet cinema making in that had been prevalent in Kazakhstan in the sixties and the seventies. And they were doing some really fun, interesting stuff with films. Some of it was sort of very ethnographic, something like, uh, you know, Serica Primo's The Last Stop, a very ethnographic film, quite a, you know, a bleak film about, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the, the sort of, Social decay of a village, of a, a primo's home village, actually, um, or something like the needle, which of course you have this very romantic, dandyish, dandyesque figure of Victor Soy playing Moro, the hero, um, and it's a it's a film of fragments. Uh, it's a it's a it's a film about drugs. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a you know it's a I guess it's a very art house film in the way that it's broken up and uh, it's a very playful film. And in fact, when I interviewed Dugmanov, he, he, for him really, the film was just about having fun with his friends. And, uh, and I think that really comes across. I mean, I, I, this is uh, uh, probably one of my favorite uh, Kazakh films actually. And in, in that sense, and um, yeah, and I think there's a real disruption uh, of, things going on with regards to the Kazakh new wave. I think there's a disruption in terms of how they reimagine or reinterpret history and, and in particular previous silences. So we start to see, um, you know, visual representations of things like the Stalinist repressions for the first time. I think there's a real negation of Soviet authority in these films. Again, actually in, in, in Igla, this comes to, to pass, but also in another film like uh, Balkon, um, and I think there's also then the other aspect I think that's important about the Kazakh New Wave is this focus on the realities, the social and economic realities of, of life in the late Soviet period, the difficult socioeconomic situation, the struggles uh, that people are facing uh, in the villages uh, and also in the city. And what what's your impression of these films today? Are they still popular? And I'm sure in the night, you know, this was something new in the late '80s. Um, so seeing these kind of films was at least novel, if not also um, that people actually really liked the films. Um, are they still popular today? Um, 
Yeah, that's again, it's a very good question. I think it's slightly hard to answer. What I would say is, I think the films are popular with, you know, uh, contemporary film directors. So some of the, the newer film directors that have emerged in the last decade or so. I think a lot of these films or that period has been a, an influence on them, not necessarily in terms of style, but I think in terms of the freedom that those directors from the late 80s, early 90s pursued in, in terms of their filmmaking. I think in a broader sense, the extent to which the Kazakhstani cinema going population uh, are interested in these films, I think it's hard to say. I mean, these are what we would call art house films, right? I mean, and, uh, you know, depressing films about <laughs> poor villages in, in, in Kazakhstan are not to everyone's taste. Uh, and I think, actually, this is a broader discussion to be had about, you know, the popularity of Kazakh-made films in Kazakhstan. Uh, and I think, actually, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of disparaging remarks that I would come across from, uh, you know, sort of ordinary cinema goes in Kazakhstan about about these types of films and and, and actually about post-Soviet art house films as well. Uh, and I think there may be more of an interest in films that are, well, we could say are either more Russian, sort of contemporary Russian style, or more Hollywood in style that feature more things like you know, they're more thrillers or with, with car chases and gangsters and this type of thing. So. Yeah, the extent to which I think these have lived long in the memory of of the broader Kazakhstani population, I, I think is doubtful. Uh, but I think f from you know, sort of cinephiles and directors themselves, I think there's, um, I think a lot of them are held in high esteem, and there's a really exciting, uh, and there's a really exciting period of uh, Kazakh cinema and Kazakh filmmaking. And this is a good transition point because I want to get I want to move past the the Soviet period and start talking about the development of film in independent you know post independence Kazakhstan because uh, one thing you mentioned in the book and you just mentioned now too is that there there does seem to be a tension between art house films and films which are targeted to let's say broader audiences in Kazakhstan but also maybe in in general, in, in post-Soviet space. Um, and there also seem to be some films that they are hoping, you know, the directors are hoping will be received well globally. Um, so what's kind of a timeline for um, the development of post-Soviet Kazakh film industry? As far as I understand, uh, following the collapse of the Union, there, uh, the Soviet Union, there was um, kind of a, a period of, I don't know if we would call it stagnation or um, breakdown uh, in, in this sector. But then, you know, by the early 2000s, I think you start to see films again. Um, is, is that correct or is there a more articulate way to explain the development of um, post-independent uh, Kazakh film industry? Yes, no, I think that's that's correct in brief terms. Uh, and I think the term stagnation is probably a good way to think about it. I mean, because, you know, the, the new wave arguably sort of goes into the early 90s and the early post-Soviet period, sort of 92, maybe 93. And you've got these great directors 
really talented guys who have made some fantastic, exciting, interesting, different films from what we'd seen before in Kazakhstan. And, and, um, but then because like in many post-Soviet countries, the economic situation is pretty dire in the early nineties and there's very little funding, very little state funding available for the production of film. Uh, there's very little private financing domestically in Kazakhstan for film. So a lot of these directors, people like Nugmanov uh, or uh, Omibayev, they have to find uh, funding, and Primov, as I say, they find funding elsewhere, and that's usually in Europe. So, and you know, France in particular. And so, a lot of them move abroad. A lot of the production of the of the films are also, you know, sort of. Um, although some of them are produced in Kazakhstan, the, the financing, the funding, and the audience to some extent is very much that international film circuit audience. It's, and I think, um, in the post-Soviet period, that's where a lot of criticism has been subjected at the so-called art house type of cinema is that uh, all these interest, all these sorry, directors, all they're interested in is, you know, getting some awards at the international film festival circuit, showing these sort of very depressing, bleak uh, films about uh, Kazakhstan. And so that's where those types of films and directors have been subjected to criticism. When things begin to change in Kazakhstan is by the early to mid two thousands, and it's it's principally actually government led. We see the uh, government channel lots more money, uh, state funds, I should say, into Kazakh film studios, and it takes on a large role as the sort of the major shareholder for the the studios. But interestingly, and I think the first thing I'd say is now principally that's done because Nazarbayev, who's the first president of Kazakhstan, you know, what's to make these big budget historical epics that begin to give us these foundation myths about Kazakh uh, history and Kazakh nationhood. One of them, you know, the most famous, I think, in 2005, uh, 2006 is Nomad, uh, in, in Russian, and uh, which is an interesting film if we want to talk about, you know, the failure of the concept of national cinema, uh, which I'll come to in a second. Um, but also as a consequence to some extent, Kazakh film studios, uh, my understanding from interviews and talking to people is that, yes, this money comes in from the government and it's state-led, and the studios are sort of under the direction of the Ministry of Culture. And the Ministry of Culture would dictate, you know, some of the types of films that need to be made. But at the same time, I think within the studios itself and the people working there, they had a lot of agency and a degree of flexibility and freedom uh, to start to fund other interesting films, films that were more art house, a bit more edgy, uh, were perhaps less of this sort of government-sponsored propaganda, either about Nazarbayev. Of course, there's a whole series of films that uh, are about Nazarbayev. Uh, and, and these attempts at the sort of reinterpretation and imagination of history. So the situation is quite complex and fluid in that sense, that the government is funding and sponsoring films uh, which... It doesn't realise perhaps that it is sponsoring that a smaller budget aimed at a more art house audience and are perhaps more critical um, and satirical of uh, the domestic political scene or domestic or, or, or society in Kazakhstan as it had been in, in the in the in the post Soviet period. And I think that's right because you, as you lay out in the book, we also see several kind of. 
um, several themes within these films. You know, we have films which are kind of ethnocentric in their descriptions of the Kazakh nation. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about Minbala, uh, which is about the the Kazakh tri- tribal defense against the Jungar Khanate uh, that's coming across uh, the steppe in the, the 18th century. And this is kind of meant to kind of brush up an ethnic ethnocentric narrative of Kazakhstan. But then you also have the opposite. You have this um, focus on the, the multinational or multi-ethnic, I should say, um, component of, of nationhood in Kazakh cinema. You know, uh, the previous president, Nazarbayev, the first president of Kazakhstan, uh, was known for frequently mentioning the multinational nature of Kazakhstan. And then finally, we have some other themes that deal with social and economic issues. Um, you identify the theme of Tengrism, which I want to get into a little bit. So um, for the book, as far as I understand, you you did have the opportunity or maybe you had research assistance to do some breakout kind of um, discussions with uh, film viewers. Is that right? Um, and uh, what what was your impression of like what films are generally, what kind of films are generally popular in Kazakhstan? Um, do people like this ethnocentric narrative or, or uh, could you, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, just to reiterate that, I mean, this is the, I guess the main analytical argument of the book is that in the post-Soviet period, we see all these different, uh, both complementary and contesting narratives and discourses about uh, nation and identity and we can observe this in cinema and actually this is what cinema helps us observe these these different narratives and as you said one is this sort of very ethnocentric narrative about uh, Kazakh nationhood and identity and it roots the formation of the uh, of the of the Kazakh nation in these sort of battles against the uh, the uh, Mongolian Jungars then we have this civic narrative which is about the sort of the multi-ethnic nature of Kazakhstan and how it's a you know it's a home for all these different kind of peoples, many of whom were uh, transported or, mi- or or forced migrated migrated to Kazakhstan and the Kazakh steppe during the, the Stalinist repressions. Then there's this Tengris narrative, which we can come to in a bit, and also a socio-economic narrative about the sort of the conditions of difficult uh, socio-economic and political conditions of post-Soviet life, and. Yes, it's true. I I undertook the uh, a few a few focus groups uh, with cinema goers, and what I found was that I mean the first thing I should say, of course, that these focus groups were self-selecting. I mean, in the sense that it had to be people who you know uh, uh, you know they were self-selecting. They were, they were based in Almaty and Astana, and these were people who came, you know, who who were, were happy to be invited and talk about it. I think that. Um, the, their views, in particular on the ethno narrative, was um, yeah. I mean, I think it arguably it was fifty fifty. Some people really liked it, appreciated it, uh, and other people thought this was horrible government propaganda. Um, but also, interestingly, one of the the really helpful things in terms of uh, data collection was a forum that I found uh, called uh, Kino.kz, and this was a really helpful way of uh, mining. Uh, the views or in terms of reception of what people felt about films and the extent to which, um, you know, we can 
whether they understood also these films of possessing these types of narratives. And uh, Kino KZ is a forum where people will post reviews of, of films. And um, and again, I think, particularly with the ethno-narrative in a film like Mumbala, is actually a lot of people, particularly on the forum site, were really positive about the production value uh, of that film. And um, even if they thought the message was, you know, this kind of government propaganda... Some people thought it was great. They they really buy the message and how important it is for Kazakh uh, the Kazakh nation and identity. So I think just like with anything, I mean, films are a very subjective experience uh, in, in terms of how we we, we feel about them. And um, yeah, it was. Some people love it. Other people find it, you know, this this kind of government government propaganda that's you know. In a very in a very Soviet mode as well, and so I want to come back to okay. Thank you for that. We have a good idea now um, of of maybe the most obvious form of state sponsored film, which is this this ethnocentric narrative of Kazakh identity um, in these specifically in these historical kind of dramas, if we want to call it that. Um, but you in the in the book you mention some other types of films, particularly uh, the film writer Ermkek uh, Tursunov uh, and his his films, which incorporate something called Tengris thought or Tengrism. Um, can you define that for us and explain how how this has a pl- place in the role of uh, filmmaking? Yeah, so Tengrism, I think. Actually, the films of Tursunov were a turning point, in particular when I first started this project and was writing the article, of allowing me to think about uh, the relationship between Kazakh cinema and nation-building identity and the role of the, you know, the government and the state in, in a different way. Because actually, Tursunov's films are funded by Kazakh film studios, but I think they offered a very different take from that of the ethnocentric narrative we talked about, these big historical epics set in the 18th century, and even the, the civic narrative films, uh, which are mostly set in the 1930s, uh, and which both those sets of films, those sets of narratives, kind of mirror Kazakh government policy when it comes to this sort of question of, of nation identity, in that, on the one hand, there's a sort of government policy is committed to sort of the ethnicization or the Kazakhification of of the state, but also it's committed to this sort of friendship of peoples, multi-ethnic Kazakhstan um, uh, idea as well. So the Tengris narrative of uh, Tursunov's films were interesting. So Tengrism was the, uh, I mean, arguably it, the, the pagan religion of, of uh, the steppe, People of, of the Mong, of the Turkic Mong, Mongol people, uh, prior to the incursion of Islam into the Central Asian region, and it Tengri is the sky god, and it's the the cult of, of worship of the sky god, and it's a, a religion which is based on this idea of the circle of life, of life, of sort of birth, life, and death, and and the cycle of, of that, and uh, it's about the relationship that uh, the Central Asian people have with nature and the symbiosis with nature and with animals and there's many different gods and they're all representing different sort of very natural um, elements like rain or water, uh, 
sort of rain and water are the same thing. So rain and fire and so on. So it's like a cult of fire and, and earth. And, and um, there's a lot of shamanistic practices associated with Tengrism. But it's a very philosophical worldview, really. And I think why it's in, and in, and to Sonoff's films in particular, there's a film called Kellin, and uh, which stands for sort of uh, daughter-in-law or bride. Um, and there's another film called Charles, Old Man, really are these sort of visual representations of this Tengris philosophy. And what it is, is a very sort of almost quasi-primordial interpretation of, of nationhood. And, uh, and in those films, it's really rooting the idea of Kazakh nationhood as being rooted in the, the, the types of social relations that all nations are rooted in, in family, in the cycle of life, birth and death, and then rebirth. And so it's a very different type of narrative to that that is portrayed in, in these uh, in these ethnocentric and, and civic narratives. Well, we're getting near the end of um, our discussion here, but I wanted to ask, um, maybe this is the easiest question, maybe not, uh, which of your which of the Kazakh films that you've seen or uh, watched for the research in this book is your personal favorite? Um, well, we've meant, I think there's two. I mean, one of them we've already talked about. So I think uh, Rashid Nagmano's uh, The Needle, uh, which I won't go back to and talk again. I think the other one is by a young uh, Kazakh director. Uh, it's called The Owners, uh, Dilhan um, Yarjanov. And it was released in 2014. It was actually funded by Kazakh film studios again, but it's a very, I think, uh, critical film of uh, social conditions in Kazakhstan about the struggle for property ownership, uh, about the difficult, challenging life that uh, ordinary Kazakhs face, uh, and that and, it, and to me, it very much sums up the this sort of this socio-economic narrative that I argue about that actually what Kazakh nationhood is, what Kazakh identity is, is the everyday struggles that people face in the post-Soviet period. The everyday struggles they face economically, the everyday struggles they face against a, a faceless, you know, bureaucracy, and that film for me uh, was an eye opener. I thought the work of Yezhanov is—he's uh, a smart, um, you know, really creative young director, a really commit, committed to you know to cinema and and cinema in Kazakhstan, and I think that film really is that was the heart of the book actually, in terms of. If we're talking about the story of, of Kazakhstan and the story of uh, Kazakh cinema and what actually cinema can tell us about contemporary Kazakh society, I think we can see a lot of it in that film. It's a film that was has not really been seen much in Kazakhstan. It's a film that uh, receives a lot of criticism from the government, from the Ministry, Ministry of Culture. Um, and uh, But I think it's a film that was, was and remains very powerful. Uh, in and uh, it's it's I think so much at the heart of the book that it's also the the opening shot of the film is is on the front cover of the book. Oh, great! I I, I was wondering what that came where that came from. Um, well, Rico, uh, thank you very much for discussing this work with us. Uh, for the listeners, if you want to read more on this book, um, the title once again is "Film and Identity in Kazakhstan." Soviet and post-Soviet culture in Central Asia, published by I.B. Taurus. Enrico, I do have one more question for you. Are there any current projects you're working on or any anything you're planning to do in the near future that you'd like to share with 
Um, well, I'm there's a, yeah, so there's a few things. Uh, I'm, I'm actually I've gone back to working on political institutions. Uh, I'm planning to my next book should be on actually it'll be on Kyrgyzstan and and uh, and what I call the struggle for parliamentarianism in 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 Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I just came back from field work. Uh, in in uh, Bishkek and in, and in Kyrgyzstan over the, over the last uh, few months, where I've been working on that. Um, and then outside of that, I'm I'm also going back to do some work on political opposition in in Kazakhstan, uh, particularly in relation to recent events and the sort of with the resignation of Nazarbayev and a lot of the protests that have happened. So, I want to have a look again at uh, some of the developments uh, around political opposition in Kazakhstan, the emergence of the youth protests. Uh, that, have, that have happened in the last few months. That all sounds really fascinating. It's a it's a, an interesting time uh, to study po the politics of Kazakhstan. Well, Rico, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you for sharing your time with us. It was a I hope hopefully a, a pleasant discussion for both of us, and I'm sure the readers uh, found a lot uh, to be interested in. Um, so thanks again for uh, for agreeing to do the interview. And hopefully we'll have you on uh, to talk about your future work. Okay, thank you very much.